So is it true that you just have a 25% chance of winning any game of four-player root? That's what, yes, yeah. We asked the community, <laughs> we got in the numbers, and it turns out uh, if there's four players, your odds are one in four. All right. Regardless of skill level, faction, card draw, dice rolls. You might as well just pull things out of a hat. And I think it's 50-50. You either win or you don't. Right. 50-50. Oh, that's interesting. I kind of like the idea of pulling it out of a hat. We could do like a, a root summer tournament where all the outcomes are just drawn from a hat. Yeah. Yeah. No root required. <laughs> well, but I mean, statistically, it's the same thing is what we're saying, right? Right. No, right, I think we 100%. should do two coin flips in a row. <laughs> Ooh. And like let that, that determine the winner. What if it's tied? Two coin flips to decide the tie. <laughs> <laughs> Two coin flips only has four outcomes, right? Uh, so everybody's yeah. assigned an outcome. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what I meant. That's what I meant. So there's no right. tying. There's only outcomes. Yeah. Only oh, so outcomes. we flip two coins simultaneously. Yeah, exactly. Like rolling then, dice in root. Right. Uh, but if you are the Wooden Alliance, you do take the higher coin flip. Damn it. <laughs> Damn it. I hate the Wibble Alliance. <laughs> Heads are, is higher than tails, right? Heads is higher okay. than tails. Higher than tails, yeah. Uh, have you seen a head? It's above a tail. <laughs> have right. you played Flip a Coin? <laughs> Unless you're a Scorpion, Sam. Oh, my God. Oh, whoa. <laughs> the Scorpions God. that are listening to this podcast are so confused. <laughs> this is the first time we get mentioned. <laughs> Oh man, scorpions would be a really fun root faction, but they're a bug, not not, not a critter. Right. So. Yeah, it has to be. Is it a size requirement for the factions? They can't be too big or too small, but like smaller than a wolf, bigger than a mouse. Is, seems to be the smallest thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you know there are spider fan factions, and that's not exactly a bug. That's yeah. The fan factions are unofficial, so I want to know like what the official line is. What's the law of root of designing? <laughs> the lore faction right? yeah, yeah are there any monkey factions i feel like that fits size wise i was wondering but the Whoa. thing is is like it's a biome thing right they tend to do very straight forests. not that monkeys don't live in forests; they do but they live tend to live in like rainforests, maybe or more jungle oh, environments yeah. Yeah, there's plenty no. that live in this kind of forest but right right jake's just referencing a forest out his window in los <laughs> angeles <laughs> did you guys see becca's instagram today no i'm gonna send you a picture right now and i'll also link this in uh the description of our pod. Okay. So guess what she found in her compost bin today? Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, he looks like the picture of the vagrant. I sent her yeah. the picture of the vagrant afterwards. Too. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my God. Usually they like play dead. <laughs> this no, guy he was, is he, he was in there. from the grave. Yeah, <laughs> he was in there. And Becca like went to go put something in the compost bin. She realized there was resistance because he was biting on the inside of the door, trying to hold it shut while she was pulling oh it open. God. Dude, that thing is made out of teeth. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> he was definitely feeling threatened. I, doesn't it look like the picture of the vagrant? It does. It's kind of cute. <laughs> it is kind of cute. It's like cute until you realize how sharp those teeth are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Every part of that creature is pointy. Yeah, they look oh, scary. Also, just like knowing that it has nothing to lose is really scary to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, he actually made David and Becca fight right then and there, which was crazy. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's that's their ability. Yeah, they can yeah. do it. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh, but he did go hostile with both of them afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm so glad I could share that news with you, but let's actually split into Root News. Root News. We have a 
boatload of root news today, actually. And this is real root news. Um, have you guys heard of boatload? this Marauder? Are the, are the expansions off the boat, Kyle? Are the <laughs> expansions off the boat? <laughs> Sam, we talked for a half hour before we recorded about how you weren't going to mention the expansions. <laughs> I'm just saying. They're coming soon. I called the captain and I asked about the um, the manifest and he said that he was not allowed to divulge that information. We're doing all we can. We're doing all we can. Fund your local news efforts, you guys. Join our Patreon over on Good Time Society. But no, here's the real root news. Uh, There is a new podcast in town. (laughs) And uh, I am so delighted uh, that our very own Lizard Queen, Lily Gould, is uh, releasing through her Makecraft game brand slash website a brand new podcast called reading rule books uh which is a just a delightful concept but uh basically she's going to be in her description making a podcast dedicated to reading through rule books and teaching games wow and so in the pod she directly reads through the rule books and discusses the game to try and clear up potential areas of confusion that's wild i mean i gotta give this a listen i always we we were like we can't teach you to play root on a podcast that's that's too hard but Lily's doing that with many games. And Lily doesn't just, she doesn't play simple games. Lily goes into the deep end. Yeah. And she's, of course, famous for um, hosting and maintaining probably the most complete data set of tournament root manifold data uh, anywhere in the internet. So that is the one-stop shop for uh, good information about tournament outcomes. I'll put a link to her first episode, which is on Vast Mysterious Manor, which is also a Leader Games game. Good stuff. Congrats, Lily. Welcome to the club. Yes. So, Mazel Tov, go go check that pod out, and we want to support our fellow creators. That's a great idea, too, because that's a that's about the right amount of time you want to kind of delve into rules, because I have always prefer to try and teach rules, like the basics of a game when I'm making our how to game videos and such. Like everybody can at least get at the table, understand what's happening and then play. But like I would love an hour to like delve into. But this is how this all works and such. And I love that she's doing that. And I mean, she has just the world's best rules resource at her fingertips as well. Yeah. Uh, the internet, but also Garrick Samples Games. Uh, Faster than the internet. <laughs> just an encyclopedia of a human being in terms of rules minutia. Um, I would be scared to play against Garrick in uh, Root Pretty. <laughs> we did. Oh my God, you're right. We did. Yeah, he lost. You beat him. You He Root. lost and then he was like, let me tell you what's wrong with your questions. <laughs> yeah, that that would be the scary part for sure. Oh, my God. That's so embarrassing. <laughs> All right. Before I answer, I have a four part question. <laughs> really great. So uh, last bit of root news here. Root news. Uh, I make it sound like a small portion, but this is actually going to be a sizable portion. This is the winter tournament update for the very end of round two. Mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, round two has wrapped up for the winter tournament. And as we move into spring, you might wonder if it's going to change the name. No, it is still the winter tournament and it is still happening. Um, and it's still <laughs> the winter tournament 2021, to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's like the Summer Olympics 2020 that happened last <laughs> <Yeah>. year. <laughs> okay, so let's get into it. Game 30 taking place in the mountain map. We had uh, one MCP playing the Harrier. Uh, choosing a Vagabond, classically considered one of the strongest Vagabonds, although oh, with yeah. Despot Infamy, it's maybe 
not quite as assassin deadly, but still considered one of, by far, one of the strongest. So still a really, really strong pick. Uh, we had Humberto choosing the Erie Dynasty, ETO as the Duchy, and Air Polo as the Woodland Alliance. All right. And so we were on the mountain map. And so this mix seemed more like racy than fighty, to be mm-hmm. honest, because mm-hmm. it's like the Woodland Alliance can race, the Duchy can race, the Erie can race. And the Harrier is there to, like, disrupt plans and also maybe race as well. Yeah, So definitely. some greedy picks, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and, in, in fact, we did see the Vagabond in this game jump out to a pretty early lead. But it turns out that was a little bit too much heat for them. And all of the players ganged up on the Vagabond. I think the, the Harrier got attacked, like, multiple times in the same round Whoa. by different factions. Mm-hmm. Spent a bunch of turns in the forest. It was a hard shutdown for the Vagabond in this game. Uh, and there was never really a, a way for the Vagabond to like get the engine online. Cause like they didn't get an early T like it was, I imagine it was a really frustrating game to play, to be honest. It was a despot opening from the Erie, which turned out to be a really solid choice uh, because the moles were a little bit on the turtley side. The, uh, you know, Vagabond didn't leave the forest and the Woodland Alliance was just alliancing on the mountain map and kind of being confined to an edge. So the Eerie was able to kind of expand easily and eventually set up a pretty hefty decree and overtook the Vagabond in terms of the lead in the mid-game. Um, no one was really battling the moles, but they didn't really get a burst going. Their action economy was insane after a while. Like they had like almost every minister, uh, a noble, and squire Sway. Did they go small? What did they put down any buildings? They did put down buildings. Yeah, it, it started off a bit slow. It was like a brigadier, like semi-small opening with a couple mm-hmm. recruits and stuff. But uh, eventually, they swayed formal. They were building. Like it, things were okay. I just think they didn't quite get the crafting they needed to accelerate. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they didn't get the big burst they were looking for. Although they did do a good job of hemming in uh, the Woodland Alliance, especially with some good martial law setup. And I, I had here that. Even though the moles weren't being actively checked, the Eerie was kind of racing ahead. So they weren't impacting each other in the early game too much. And that let the Eerie get out to a big lead. But eventually, the Vagabond escaped from the woods and turmoiled the Eerie. Yeah. Which was really, really good for everyone else. Uh, the Eerie swapped over into Charismatic. And the game just like really ground to a halt. And when the game slows down... That's good for the insurgents in this type Mm -hmm. of atmosphere. So uh, the Woodland Alliance was starting to gain some momentum and the Duchy had been pretty quiet overall, but they were finally able to get a foothold and start to grow a bit. Did the Duchy just not have the cards they needed in the right, or like the moles in the right clearings or something? What was the deal? Well, they actually did something really smart. They put a mole in the Lost City real early in the game, which Mm -hmm. is so helpful. It it makes that sway really flexible, right? Because you get a free card no matter what. Yep. And that turned out to be really helpful. It was just, like they just didn't get the right cards. Like just the stars didn't align. Yeah. Yeah. Like RNG actually played a pretty decent role in keeping the duchy from having that explosive momentum. It turns out in the end, it was probably going to be a Woodland Alliance victory, which uh, people in the chat were like pretty meh about, (laughs) (laughs) but the Erie had crafted master engravers at an earlier point in the game and ended up using that to craft a boot and a hammer on the last turn for four points, four points of crafting. That's a good use of that. Yeah, and just like hit 30 on the nose. Yeah. Really, really nice way to close out the game. So congrats to Humberto for moving on. 
And if uh, if you are not moving on to round three, make sure to hop over to the Good Time Society Discord on the Woodland War Machine channel. We actually have a little thread going under Woodland War Machine for uh, uh, those of us who uh, the stars haven't quite aligned for, as Jake put it, and are uh, watching the Winter Tournament unfold from the bleachers. And uh, that's the Cool Kids Losers Club. And you know what? I actually really... I really feel at home there. It's a fun thread. You guys should come check it out sometime. I'm sure I will soon. Um, <laughs> but I'm I'm being diligent, even though like we have permissions and we run the podcast and that's a place where the podcast might be being discussed. I'm like, nope, those people have earned their right to be in the Cool Kids Losers Club and I will join them, I'm sure, eventually. <laughs> but I'm not oh, looking it's, it's yet. so fun, you guys. You don't even know. <laughs> don't even know. I'm going to lose just so I can join. <laughs> Yes, good stuff. Uh, so yeah, congrats to Humberto. That was it. Was a really good game. The, the, this last weekend of games is truly fantastic. So worth a watch. That was game thirty. Jake, tell us about game thirty-one. We had game thirty-one on the winter map. We had Bowain as the scoundrel, Darth Caboose as the Lord of the Hundreds, Star Tool as the Woodland Alliance, and. As the Eerie, our good friend, Lord of the Board. Yeah. Woo. Yeah. Burr, 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 burr. He was. <laughs> he, always wa- <laughs> he always wants to play with an alliance, but uh, uh, getting in that winter map uh, was a little trepidatious for him. So he, I think, might have had first pick. And I think he chose Eerie. As the, I mean, he definitely chose Eerie. I think he was first pick. He started up in the southeast, where the Lord of the Hundred set up in the southwest. The scoundrel was in the middle. And. This was a crazy first round. Scoundrel is so spicy. Because the first the first turn, the scoundrel got the hammer out of the runes. Then on the warlord's first turn, they crafted a hammer. Yeah. And then the Woodland Alliance in their first turn used two bird ambushes out of the followers <laughs> to spread sympathy. What? So the, the bird ambushes were already out of the cycle. Wow. Then Lord of the Board on his first turn put a mouse card in his recruit. Yeah, I saw this twice. So yeah. he had two mice in his recruit. It's the oh, same that's though. So risky. Well, it's, it, it is so true. Risky. It is the same. That's in fair. For a penny and for a pound, you might as well I, put I six mouse cards in there. And it doesn't know, matter. He he was he was talking after the game about about putting those suited mouse cards in, and I will say this is the best attempt of rolling with suited cards in your. Um, recruit than I have seen in a long time. And, it, and for those of you that are not familiar, it's really not advantageous to put suited cards in your recruit because it's the beginning of your decree, right? So if you turmoil then, you don't get to fulfill any of the other actions on your turn. Your turn's virtually wasted on just turmoiling. Yeah, and it p- paints a big target on mm-hmm. any any roosts you have in mouse clearings, and it makes them kind of light up for the other players at the board who are looking to uh, sink your battleship as the Eerie. Yeah. So uh, then around on turn two, the Woodland Alliance double revolted in a a rabbit and a mouse clearing. Like it was just a lot of things started happening that were just like throwing the game into a little bit of chaos. Eventually, the Lord of the Hundred started doing their thing. They were raising all over the place. They were moving around and fighting. The Eerie and them clashed in the southern region while the Alliance kind of built up in the north. And as we know, the north region is really hard to is really difficult to get out of for the Woodland Alliance. And they kind of got stuck there for a while. The Warlord 
placed a raise token in one of the clearings where the Alliance base was and then moved his army in there to protect it. The Alliance, of course, on their turn, tried to deal with it and used one of their attack actions. And the Warlord revealed an ambush, killing the two Woodland Alliance soldiers protecting the cardboard there. So it's just free cardboard when the raise resolved. Oh, boy. I mean, it was going to be free cardboard when the raise resolved anyway, but it, it just didn't have anybody defending it. Yeah, either. insult to injury there. Right. Uh, eventually, the warlord. I mean, the warlord pretty much had a steady lead, and and actually, the eerie went a little bit for a hail mary and threw, I think, a another card in their recruit, like a bird card, and started trying to go over and disrupt the uh, the warlord's buildings and such and did an okay job of it but it was just going to be ripe for turmoil the next turn which is what he Mm. couldn't afford so because he overextended him it caused him to turmoil and then sam was actually in the lead at that point the the warlord had been surging ahead but the ear was keeping up eventually and was one point ahead of them and then he turmoiled for six negative six points yeah there was a lot of bird cards in that decree yeah and then but like then there was a lot of suited cards in recruit. It's it was kind of the worst of all worlds for that turmoil. Right. I think it was making you know lemonade out of what he was given. Um, but what he was given was just a lot of mice, and mice well, lemonade <laughs> is not tasty. No, no. He had a very convenient board situation that three mouse clearings were all on the southern edge where he kind of was. Right. So he actually had an option to kind of make that work, but it would involve not really disrupting the warlord, which he kind of mm. had to do. I'm not sure the way he did it worked, but I mean, I know it didn't, but <laughs> I'm not sure it would have worked. The other thing is, is like Garrick theorized, is this a mouse dominance play? Because for right. the majority of the game, it was double mouse in that clearing. So he's like, well, he's going to hold on to those for his life if he just gets the third he might be able to pull it off in the end though the warlord uh cinched it for the win and so lord of the board is also moving on to round three with sam and myself yeah along with uh darth caboose yeah congrats to darth caboose on that lord of the hundreds win yeah lord of the hundreds is doing well on the winter map maybe it's because we're uh not up to date with the meta in terms of countering uh, Lord of the Hundreds in a precise way yet, but I th- yeah, I think that's it. I assume that will get better in the future, but it seems like Winter Map is really looking good for Lord of the Hundreds. It's just like nice and cagey, and you can stomp around. I can't tell what the difference between a game where the Warlord is like the number one threat at the table and times where they're like, eh, <laughs> you know, it is hard to yeah. tell. Faction mix has a lot to do with it. I think it's people that make their moods efficiently, right? Because I've. They can stomp around anywhere. They're so good at just disrupting plans. Yeah. And when they don't do that is when, because they haven't got the mechanisms to get there to stomp around and disrupt plans. I think I agree with that. You've got to be a little bit of a cannonball as Lord of the Hundreds. And our, uh, so our Lord of the Hundreds guide is actually coming up really soon. And um, it's been so fun to research this, this new faction and get really into the weeds about it. So look forward to that uh, upcoming from Woodland War Machine um, as part of, uh, to kind of companion with the release of, or the arrival of the Marauders expansion. Um, we're going to be bringing you all the insights that we've been able to gather from the winter tournament in terms of the new factions. So excited about that. Uh, and to close it out with game 32 taking place in the mountain map, last game of round two, we had John playing as the Corvid conspiracy. We had Gerard as the cats. We had Tuto playing the Badgers and Ring Forger as the Lord of the Hundreds. And I you like know, three of these guys are a medieval band. It's John, Gerard, and Tuto and <laughs> the Ring Forger. <laughs> Ring Forger definitely plays drums, right? <laughs> right yeah. 
and an anvil over on the side. Okay. So uh, this is actually a good example of a faction mix that is horrible for Lord of the Hundreds. Right. Um, Corvids. Yeah. Cats. Badgers. I mean, these are resilient factions that like to go all over the place and completely get in the way of uh, oppress points. Right. So uh, I wrote here, tough environment for both cats and warlord, especially. Uh, very cramped, and there's just warriors everywhere, and it's hard to move around because everyone's trying to, like, lock down their clearings. And so it's just, you know, a bit of a grinder, this game. Yeah. Uh, so the, definitely the, the faction for choice, at least out of the gate, was the Badgers because they, they uh, had a nice setup, grabbing three clearings around a forest, uh, and were able to pull a relic immediately and just, like, got into a good position. We're able to kind of get their engine rolling. But it was pretty clear from the beginning that them being able to cross the map with all this interference from the other factions and the kind of warrior density was going to be an issue. Right away, the warlord took up a pretty dominant position in the middle of the board and crafted fox partisans, and they camped on the pass with the lost city. <laughs> so that means that in every single battle involving the warlord, they had the option to use fox partisans. And this would be an issue later in the game, which we'll talk about. That's fun. Uh, which is a really fun interaction. Yeah. Uh, just add that to the list of Lost City strategies that I'm mm-hmm. going to talk about one day. Um, okay, they got a stronghold going in the middle as well to kind of uh, stock up on warriors and stuff. It looked like they had some decent positioning, even though the map was closed. Cats had a classic build-over-build opening, although it was theorized a bit later in the game that maybe the, this is one situation where the cats may have wanted to consolidate with an early march or something. But it turned out that the Corvids, because they went first, were able to flip and extort and stole a bird card from the cats on turn one, which is really rough. <laughs> it's really rough. You don't you don't love it. Why are those the two fighting each other? You know, they need to I help know. each other. I know. In that situation. Tough stuff. Uh, and speaking of the cats, at the end of turn two, the cats had access to one, count them, one empty build slot. End of turn two. Whoa. What do you do in that situation? That's, That's crazy. Desperate times. Yeah. You just mean desperate in their times. area, right? Where they were, right? Right, where they were. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Still, that was like all they could move to. And like while well, they had cats in. Like, right. <laughs> it was nuts. Corvids basically languished in the back of the pack for the first half of this game. I mean, they crafted coins pretty early, which was good. And that was good for like a loot at a certain point. But they were... They were Kind of just in the back of the pack. They had a couple of plots going, but it was, you know, kind of a slow start for them. The thing that really changed this game is that the Warlord tried to take out a face-down plot and ended up dying to embedded agents. What? So the Warlord was out of the game. I think like turn three or something. It went down like pretty early in the game. And then after the Anoint came back, he got destroyed again. I think from the Badgers this time, mm-hmm. like it was, it was just like a really tough situation. And suddenly the warlord was looking pretty weak and just like didn't have a strong board presence. And that helped the Badgers kind of break through into the middle and kind of cross the board. And as soon as they were able to do that, they like jumped up into a huge lead uh, or at least a decent lead. And then that kind of turned into a greater and greater lead. So everyone uh, kind of like allied against them it became a little three V one situation. Yeah, that's how it goes with badgers these days. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you don't actively stop them, they can just slip into a a big burst of points. Mm -hmm. So it was up to the Corvids from the back of the pack to police the badgers. And what's the best way to police the badgers if you're the Corvids? That's right, ladies and gentlemen, a snare lock. No, not again. Are you serious? It happened again? The badgers were snare locked again. They were eliminated. They couldn't come back. 
This time, though, there was a difference. There was a single badger guarding the way station. Mm. And that single badger, I mean, it took a couple of turns. And the right. cats were finally able to catch up and actually ended up passing the badgers in terms of victory points. But that single badger was eventually able to battle down the corvid and the snare and free themselves from the clutches of the of the corvids. Wow. But the thing is, the game slowed down. Right? And when the game slows down, who does that benefit? That benefits the insurgents. So suddenly the Corvids were looking good. Like, the cats were coming back. The warlord is coming back. Everyone's growing again. The warlord got, like, a big ball of troops and just, like, stuck them right in the middle again. Started swinging the, like, the hammer of the warlord around and crushing people. And uh, the cats looked like they were going to win at 28 VP. And so the warlord attacked the keep. There was a keep assault in this game. Like, it had everything. <laughs> After three battles with a, a wrathful warlord dealing extra hits, wow. the cats were able to field hospitals three times. And in fact, they used a bird ambush to field hospitals the third time, Dang. which I thought was kind of a cool move. And they uh, they were able to hang on to their keep, got to 28 points. But out of all the chaos, a victor emerged. The Corvid Conspiracy was able to craft and flip their way to sneak a victory. How'd they do it? They flipped. From last place. Uh, They they moved around and they battled like a mob token. Like they were just able to soak up a couple of like guac points, basically. Mm -hmm. Good for them. Yeah, really exciting game. Really exciting game. Very much worth a watch. um, There was a couple of like rules oopsies in there, but uh, I overall just a really exciting game to watch. It's good stuff. Wow. All right, and that is your winter tournament recap. The end of round two here on the Woodland War Machine. We'll catch you guys after the weather for <laughs> the next section. <laughs> next week, we should probably just like list off everyone who's in round three. Oh, that's a good idea. And yeah. then tell me how to beat them. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, Sam, this is not going to be your opposition research podcast. All right, buddy. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> well that's gonna bring us into the episode proper which is kind of uh an rng episode jake how do we how are we framing this yeah random number generator is what rng stands for a generation the act of is it a verb is it a noun i always was like randomly generated numbers but i think it's a i think it's a random number generator i think it's generator i think it has to do with computers but anything that we're in a game that has an element of randomness, gets called RNG. Right, and we're talking about the world's first computer, the die. (laughs) In Root, there's a few, there's some elements of randomness, right? We're always talking about optimizing our play and trying to pick the best thing possible logically, but there's some things that don't obey the rules of logic. They obey the rules of randomness. That's when you shuffle your cards and draw them. That's when you roll dice and see what the result comes up. And a few other things. Yeah, uh, clearing distribution is often randomized the factions we can draft at the beginning of uh the ad set uh that's right that's right the factions we can draft it in terms of ad set there's also the badgers uh face down relics is randomized at the beginning mm-hmm. of the game the ruin items the ruin, are also yeah. random randomly uh arrayed there's a lot of randomness actually kind of all over and there's little pockets of randomness too but today we're kind of really going to focus on two main points of ram- randomness because they kind of affect the game for everybody most commonly uh and that's largely the cards and the dice uh 
Uh, we'll start with cards first because it's kind of a little bit easier to delve into them. And I, it's great. I think there's going to be a future episode where we can go into the specific faction randomness. But we're just kind of covering general randomness as it pertains to the decks of cards and the dice. I personally believe that probably the biggest random element is the humans across the table. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Who oh, knows sure. what they're thinking, what their skill yeah. level is, how many times have they played this faction? That to me is the true random assessment that you have to do in a game of root. But today we're focusing on the decks and the dice. Mm-hmm. Yes. And hopefully, after uh, kind of giving you some grounded like facts to set your feet on, um, we're also going to try and dive into some of the like kind of concepts that are surrounding RNG and randomness and like ways to approach it that will hopefully help to give you like a little bit of an advantage in games, or at least be able to identify your own kind of bias in relation to randomness, uh, which I'm really excited to get into because there's definitely some takeaways that I wish I had thought about more during my, uh, my tournament games, honestly. Yeah. Additionally, we're not going to like, we're going to talk about percentages and numbers here, but we're not going to go real deep into the math so much as like how you want to use this math. Because as we talked about in the focus episode or the under pressure episode, you only have so much cognitive ability (laughs) and you definitely only have so much bandwidth during a game. So if you're going to be doing, you know, calculations or multiplication tables to try and figure out what is available to you, that might not be the best use of your time. Right. You don't want to get mired in all that necessarily, but it is useful to know. Uh, like the dice table uh, mm-hmm. is actually like fairly useful when you're kind of contemplating an attack or something. We did cover uh, much of this in our third episode, and that was 36 episodes ago. Uh, <laughs> we've grown a lot since then, and I think we want this episode to be a, a quicker reference for people who are just interested in this topic rather than hearing our entire conspiracy on the components and how they relate to the number 12 or don't re- relate to the number 12. Is it 10 or is it 12? We don't know. So you're pitching, you're just pitching that people shouldn't listen to that and should instead listen to this. I'm just saying if you didn't know that existed, that also exists. This, I think, is going to be a more concise and clear version, especially when you're just looking for decks and dice. Yeah, yeah sure. If you work at Leader Games, feel free to drop us a message uh, over on the Good Time Society Discord. Um, let us know if our suspicions about the number 12 are accurate or what. Like, <laughs> let us know. Yeah, and if there's 12 of you, uh, each of you respond. <laughs> 12 times. 12 times. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, this, there's two decks of cards in the... Well, there's there's plenty of cards. What are they called? Card decks? Decks of cards? There's two different decks, yeah. There's the standard deck, and then there's the Exiles and Partisans deck. Each of which have 54 cards. Their suit distribution is the same as well. There's 14 birds, 14 foxes, 13 mice, and 13 rabbit. I'll remind right. you, that suit is just the suit. It doesn't relate to crafting costs, which can be different. Yeah. I asked people on the Discord today, I was like, hey, you know, there's an extra fox card in the deck as it, it compared to mice and rabbits. Has anyone ever factored this in? <laughs> what did they say? And everyone's like, no. Because like (laughs) people have hands full of cards. It's 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 very hard to card count in root. Also, that's not what you ever really card count is like, okay, slightly more chance of Fox, slightly more chance of Fox, slightly more. If you're a lizard player, you've thought about it. Okay, sure, sure. Like those suits really matter, especially because bird isn't wild for those things. Um, So you're really looking at those suits. Well, what, what I don't know what people answered, but it, 
what's your guys's answer? I mean, your answer is no, you don't really necessarily look for that unless you're in a lizard circumstance. But really, what are we looking at when we're eyeballing is less the cards already played, right? Because that's guaranteed information of how many Fox cards are still out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're counting those as opposed to counting the question mark that's on a face down deck. You're perusing the discard pile mostly in order to, via process of elimination, sort of guesstimate the kind of relative density of suits left in the deck. The only problem with that type of estimating is that the contents of other players' hands is private information, unless it's a player that reveals cards like uh, a faction that reveals cards like the Duchy or the Lizards, for example, uh, or the River Folk, which has a public hand. Any private information really can muck with the um, the calculations like quite a lot so it's actually quite difficult to speak to what you said sam it's really really hard to accurately card count because of all the private information and when you factor in stuff like if there's uh supporters for the within alliance for example or the decree has cards locked in it um there's there's just like a lot of ways to distort um the number of cards that are available yeah, it's, it's very difficult. And I think that makes sense why it's like there's an extra Fox card in the deck and it never feels like there is. <laughs> yeah, but here's a, here's a, an interesting thing when it comes to the suit of card. If I'm particularly invested in drawing a particular suit and if for my faction birds are indeed wild, I like to think about it this way. I actually have a 50% chance of drawing the suit that I need. Say, for example, I need a rabbit. Like there's 13 rabbit cards in this deck, but there's also 14 birds. Mm -hmm. So that's like basically half the deck that Mm -hmm. I could draw and still fulfill my needs. So in that sense, I find that being able to even draw a single card can be a coin flip for it being the suit that I need. If you're if what you're invested in is it being a particular suit. So that's a, a good rule of thumb to keep in mind if you're the type of faction that cares about that sort of thing. That's a super helpful and optimistic way of looking at card draw, too. Because yeah. when you're desperate for a suited card, knowing that it's, hey, it's just 50-50, that's, that feels nice. Yeah. <laughs> Granted, other factors will play in once you start seeing the discard and what's crafted and what's been played and stuff. I like to think of like uh, the, the Badgers or the Keepers in Iron, for example, when they need to fill up their retinue um, and are looking for particular suited cards um, for recover, for example, it's it's actually really great to have an extra card draw or the, the ability to even draw one card can make a big difference. We all know that card advantage is a huge part of root. And I think like like Kyle said, drawing one card's a 50 50 drawing two cards. You're almost guaranteed to get what you need. If you're drawing three cards at the end of your turn, you can make it work. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the the randomness is pretty forgiving and the variance is pretty low in root. Right. There are four suits. One is wild. Right. So there's yep. really only three suits. The dice go from zero to three. It's not like Dungeons and Dragons where you're rolling a 20 sided die and that variance is huge. Right. We're talking about the numbers are always small in root. Now, we are referring on to these cards on their suited ability, right? Correct. So yeah. there's also the randomness of, like, what that card is. Yeah. And True. praying for a certain card in there definitely changes the numbers a little bit. So, for instance, there's only right. five ambushes in each mm-hmm. of those decks, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's one thing where in, in the rulebook, you actually always have the ability to check out the discard pile. And if you're scanning for ambushes... Take a look at the discard pile. Just like check and see what's out there. If there's no ambushes in the discard pile and the deck is 
the you know available deck of cards to draw is getting small, that means that those ambushes are likely in people's hands, and they are armed to the teeth and you know exercise caution. But if you find them all in the discard pile, like open season, you know like that should just give you more peace of mind about the attack you're contemplating. Additionally, you'll want to count obviously the cards for crafting. That's another key cards to look out for. I mean, what are the cards to look out for? Is like the ambushes, the crafting. Right. Those are those are the uh, the main ones. Two of the four types of cards in Root. Right. There's the ambushes. There's the crafted items. There's dominance cards, and there's uh, crafted improvements. Mm-hmm. Right. Those are the four types of cards, and ambush and, and dominance cards make up the smallest slice. And the rest is split pretty 50-50 between items and crafted improvements. Yeah, four dominance, five ambush, 20 item cards, and 25 craftable improvements in each of those decks. The only thing that makes the decks different are those 25 crafted improvement cards. Right, and they differ significantly, for right. sure. Yeah. Right, well, that's what I'm saying is which ones do we focus on as like the grouping that are easy to count? It's probably ambushes. Ambushes and items are... And- yeah. yeah, obviously it's easy to count dominance cards, but the thing to focus on is most likely ambushes and items. Because uh, you can count, right? Because you can count! There's three coins available. Right. Uh, and if you know you see two of those in the discard pile and you have one in your hand, you can be pretty certain that no one else is going to craft those coins. Right. So you can hang on to it for a turn. Mm-hmm. You can shade your points. Yeah, and if you don't know how to count, uh, Counting with Kyle is a new podcast you can find on Spotify with Kyle Atchison. He counts anywhere from one to however long he goes for. Yeah, latest episode, we're at 12 million, so. Hey, good for you guys. Yeah, smash that like button. In terms of randomness in cards, Jake, the thing I think we should think about is the draft at the top of the game in terms of the uh, uh, ad set or advanced setup. So in advanced setup, everyone gets a hand of five cards before they choose their faction to examine. So you get to look at a hand of five cards, see kind of what the deal is, pick a faction, and then discard down to three, right? So already RNG is happening before (laughs) anything else in the game. I guess turn order is the first instance of RNG. Mm -hmm. Right. And maybe clearing distribution. But the first thing that you have agency over is choosing your hand of cards that is dealt to you randomly. Uh, so we, we did a little bit of napkin math with Nev, uh, which actually sounds like a really fun podcast title. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so according to Nev's calculations, you have a 36% chance that amidst all the hands that have been drafted, you know, a total of 20 cards in a four-player game of Root, that two ambushes have appeared amidst those 20 cards. There's a 36% chance. And if you don't have one... Uh oh. <laughs> and the thing about ambushes, right, Sam, is that people don't tend to throw those away or like put them back in the deck, right? They tend to hold on to those because they're valuable. So there's a really, really high percentage chance, or at least a reasonably high percentage chance, that your opponents are s- stockpiling ambushes straight out the gate. Yeah. Be aware during those early attacks. You should always <laughs> take the ambush. Well, yeah, because it's the double benefit of having it and not giving it back to the deck, right? Yeah, there's no reason, I think, to put it back in the deck. If you're going to spend it, great. Then there's one less ambush that you have to worry about. Mm -hmm. Like, the idea that you're going to put it back in there and be the lucky one of four to draw it back, that's a bad idea. Because remember, listener, if you discard it during the draft, it'll get shuffled into the deck. But if you spend it during the game, it gets in the discard. It won't get cycled in as immediately. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I love that point. 
uh, Sam. Additionally, because this is before you've chosen where to like be on the map when you start to set up your faction, you might factor in that ambush as to where your starting position is. So let me ask a question. How much does the RNG of like that initial card draw, how does that impact your faction choice? Uh, it's pretty big. If I, if I have no bird cards, then there are certain factions I'm not going to pick. The birds? Mm, probably the birds. I'm yeah. not picking the cats. If I had three bird cards, I'd still be like, do I want to play the cats? Um, <laughs> badgers need birds. Badgers is the other one I was going to say. I wouldn't pick badgers without bird cards. But back to your cats example. So between zero and three bird cards, you're unhappy with picking cats? That means like all <laughs> scenarios. Because <laughs> you only have three cats. Uh, it was a joke because I don't play cats a lot. But like, obviously, if I have three <laughs> bird cards and it's between cats and lizards, I'll choose cats. But... Um, that lizards works in the opposite way, where if right. I have a handful of bird cards, I'm not choosing lizards. Okay, so this is actually an interesting idea. So presence of bird cards is a, a pretty big factor in choosing a faction, it sounds like, Sam. 100%. Yeah, I, I base it almost exclusively off of suit. And then just general, like, what's the faction mix? What do I predict this yeah. game is going to look like? Yeah. But I, I that hand of cards is hugely influential in, in what I want to play. Hmm. Is that good for you, Kyle? I think I actually really agree with that. Um, give me one second to pull up the percent calculator here. Because I tend to, I tend to look at faction comparisons much more heavily, or map slash starting placement. I mean, I obviously look at the cards too, but I don't weigh it as much as you do, and yeah. that's not great. Well, no, I, I, you know, I think it all has to get factored in. I think you, I think you have to choose between that. Uh, kind of like faction mix and how you predict the game's going to go and the hand of cards and make the best decisions kind of in between. Right. Yeah. You know, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, I do think that the hand thing, it factors in in a big way, just because I know that some factions get really hamstrung if they do or do not have bird cards. But it's bird cards. It's not any other factor of their suits. Or if you're mono suited or whatever. With ad set, it's because I will most likely have at least some flexibility on what right. my starting clearing suit is going to be. It doesn't end up being as big of a deal. Ad set makes this game so much better. Like, why? Oh my gosh. I don't want to play any other way. <laughs> I talk to my coworkers at work. I'm like, you have no idea what's coming. Ad set is the best thing. It's so funny how, like, the Exiles and Partisans deck, Blue Root open for me and then and then add sets even a smaller stack yeah. of cards and that's going to have an even bigger impact on the game yeah so. seismic in the best way yeah i i would say that i maybe am a little over over reliant on the initial card draw in terms of picking my faction like jake you you mentioned that like really taking a hard look at the faction mix and figuring out like who's got the best shot here in this mix uh is like part of your priority decision making uh i i really think that that's an area where i could grow as a player is like more seriously thinking about that instead of getting so mired in like the card selection you guys are so familiar with the cards like this it's very back of the hand for you two in terms of like what's out there what's still available and i don't have that grasp yet uh where my grasp is 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 in faction interaction a little bit or at least that's what i feel more confident in so i rely on that more totally but i i I see the argument because you two always get your engines on reliably compared to me. And that's because you use your cards really well and draft properly in the opening. Yeah, it can make a big difference. Yeah, for it can sure. Make a big difference. 
I like uh, these little stats you have here, too. Yeah. Okay. So some fun stuff to consider. So once everyone has drafted their cards, that means that 12 cards in a four player game, 12 cards are actually already out of the deck. So our available pool of cards to draw from is actually 42 instead of 54, which changes the numbers like a, a pretty big amount. Again, there's private information, so it throws off all the calculations by or at least there's an er- a margin of error. Um, but there is approximately a 20% chance of drawing an item card on your very first draw. Assuming you draw one card. If you draw one card. Yeah, right. that seems high. Yeah, which is which is pretty high, but it's just like something to think about, right? Like if you're the kind of faction that cares about items, for example, then like maybe boosting your card draw early in the game, like as fast as you can, is going to be pretty helpful. And it actually makes me reassess, like, you know how the Harrier starts with the coins for no reason? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's like part of their starting item set. I'm like, well, that actually means that they have a higher than average chance of getting that T early in the game in terms of like just top decking it. Sure, sure. And it's just definitely something to think about. Um, Early card advantage can can make a big difference for factions that care about items. And and we've seen also like with Warlord, the rowdy opening has, has been at least reasonably popular during the winter tournament. I think I can count like three or four uh, different winter tournament games that opened rowdy with the warlord. And rowdy and, is oh. the mood that allows them to draw extra cards. Exactly. Yeah. You get to draw extra cards at the end of your t- first turn to draw cards, plural, because formerly they just draw <laughs> one card, the poor pathetic guy. Oh, exactly. My God. So they, they have very, very little card draw. Thematically what's going on there with the warlord. They only get like one supporter every turn. Cause they're so mean. No, I just think it's that worker productivity is low because they're constantly burning everything down. <laughs> I feel like it's a really mean recruit, too. It's like, get over here. You know what I mean? As you draw You're that pulling card. people off the production. He's oppressing so. people all day. <laughs> Who wants to work for him? I think you were right, Sam. He's too mean to get more card draws. Yeah. They literally have to pillage everybody, right? So there's not really a reliable income right. situation going on over there. They're looting and oppressing. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, tough stuff. But since they really care about items, having right. that early card advantage turns out to be like perhaps a good move. Mm-hmm. Maybe another kind of notch on the rowdy is a good opening um, file that I'm keeping in my brain right now. Because <laughs> <laughs> if it was a physical file... Just putting notches in it. Yeah, I've got my uh, yeah. my counting blade over here. Once again, counting with Kyle. Fun podcast coming up. You know, you can you can write on the file. You don't have to keep stabbing it like that. <laughs> it's the Warlord file. It just felt appropriate. <laughs> One other thing to think about too is that there's only five ambushes in the deck, and in you know all other things being equal, you have like around a nine percent chance of drawing an ambush from a card of forty two decks if all five ambushes are present. However. <laughs> We've just spoken about how people like to hang on to their ambushes out of that initial ad set draft. Yeah. We said there was a 36% chance of two of them appearing in those drafted hands, right? So with that reasonably high percentage chance that ambushes are showing up in those initial hands, that means that your chance of drawing ambushes just off the top of the deck actually drastically drop in an ad set environment. Sure. Which means... In a way that kind of reinforces our opinion that hanging onto those ambushes is a good thing to do in the beginning uh, draft because like there's like a scarcity situation there, right? Like if people were just constantly throwing them back because they weren't that good, then there would, you know, be a reasonable chance of drawing them mm-hmm. later. But mm-hmm. I, I just have to assume that lots of people hold on to those. So the scarcity situation means your chance of drawing them declines quite a lot. Uh, so they are they are 
very precious in an ad set environment. Love that takeaway. Yeah, I think these are just like factoids about this because you can't just like use a percentage and be like, now I can win games because I know it's like we're just kind of taking little observations and seeing how we can use them and apply them. And remember, percentages are still based on like your own awareness of what that percentage means. A coin flip means you're still going to lose half the time. (laughs) Right. It is about perception. You're right. I mean, because I said it was optimistic when you said 50 50, but it's it was more optimistic than I thought because I thought it was less than 50 50, but it's still an even shot i forget how often like a three zero can happen a ton <laughs> right and if um the root digital app is to be believed it's like 50 percent of the time okay, sure <laughs> well, sure <laughs> the thing is threes happen a lot a three zero can actually only happen 12.5 percent of the time that's what i'm looking for it's like yeah, yeah it's like 12 percent of the time you can get that three zero but you just see that three show up so much. Mm-hmm. The three does come up a lot. And uh, maybe this is a good time to transition to the dice. But are there anything? Is there anything else with cards we want to talk about? I, I had one other small factoid to mention. And this is definitely small. But it is something. And that's when the deck cycles. Mm. Uh, that's when you reshuffle the discard pile back into the deck. Oftentimes when that first shuffle happens... The deck is significantly smaller than it was when you first started out in the game. And that's for a couple of reasons. Reason number one is that the dominance cards get filtered out of the deck before the first reshuffle. Mm -hmm. So already you go from a deck of 54 to a deck of 50, which means that all the numbers start to kind of rise a little bit. Things become a little more common because you don't have that filler of the dominance cards in there anymore. Secondly, a lot of times players' hands are fuller. Once the first reshuffle happens, the deck is actually a lot smaller and thinner. And then thirdly, there's factions that just, you know, put cards into places to, like, lock them away. Supporters, I don't know, Lost Souls, Decree, Mm -hmm. Retinue, a lot of examples of this. Also, any crafted improvements. And crafted improvements is another example. Yeah, those persist, right? They stick around on the player boards once Mm -hmm. you've crafted them. And so they don't get reshuffled. Right, uh, until so, they're saboteurs or spent. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Kyle, this is so good to bring up, right? Like crafted improvements inherently are less are going to be less common on the redraw just because they stick around. I mean, obviously saboteurs exist and they could get back in there once crafted. Um, and maybe they aren't the number one cards people choose to craft. I think people tend to rely on items more. But uh, certainly that's something to think about with that reshuffle. Well, and right. Like the factions at the table, as you mentioned, the decree and the retinue are going to stabilize those cards for a while out in the game area. And they're probably going to use those crafted improvement cards because they want to craft the item cards more likely. So keep that in mind. I think that what that tends to do is actually just boost the frequency of seeing items appearing. At least in my experience, that's what I tend to see most often. Um, once the deck becomes thinner, those crafted improvements are filtered out, the dominance cards are filtered out, people are holding on to the ambushes, you start to see those item cards a lot, which is something to consider in an endgame situation. For example, if you were the river folk and you were milling the deck towards the end of the game, a strategy that we've talked about a lot on this podcast mm-hmm. um, as being a risk. But in this type of situation, if you know there's a lot of crafted improvements out there and all the doms are out, like... <laughs> There's actually Mm -hmm. a a more reasonable chance you'll see those crucial item cards. So maybe something to consider if you're going to go for a a card-based strategy like that. I love that. I just want to hit us with the old crafting kind of uh, compass here. Yeah. Where uh, if you have crafters in uh, certain suits. So mouse 
crafter items, right? Items that can be crafted with mouse crafters. Total six points. Okay. That's bags and tea, right? Yeah, yeah. The two teas for four points and the two bags for six. Yeah. Rabbit is going to get you eight because there are two coins and two boots. Right. And Fox is going to get you seven because there are two swords for four, a hammer for two. And a crossbow for one. And a crossbow for one. That's right. I think it's just uh, helpful to know when you're uh, kind of like when we're talking about the random number generator of trying to get item cards that those are the crafters that you're going to need. So you have to get lucky on the draw, but the way you can set yourself up for that luck is to plan ahead with knowing that these are the suits that are associated with those items and how many points are in each suit. Right. If you're trying to maintain or establish some kind of crafting piece, take a look at that item bank and figure out, do I need rabbit? Do I need mouse? Do I need fox? And in that way, you can mitigate the randomness of the draw by putting your effort into the most useful category or suit that you can kind of assess. That's definitely a good like step to the upper tier. The up the next echelon of root play is to be familiar with those crafting costs. Yeah, pretty much by the back of your hand. I think anybody that knows how to really play this game knows that. And I'll say that as someone who doesn't know that. So I'm going to learn it right now. Yeah, definitely keep it in mind. It's really a lot more about that on in episode three. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, some good work has been done by the root community to help simplify this. Uh, Just want to shout out Tristan. Yeah, uh, who I remember the the moment that Sam and I came across the crafting chart that Tristan made that really helped to like open our eyes to the the upper echelons of of root play, like you mentioned, Jake. Uh, So just just a shout out, like people helping to bring this game to a different level just everywhere. Really appreciate your effort. Um, I see here that Jake, you've just sort of surreptitiously dropped uh, a <laughs> yeah. link into this document that we're all referencing. that just says frequency illusion. So it's be, it was back when you guys were talking about how often three O's hit and well, this would be a good leading us into the dice situation. Cause I feel like frequency illusion or really it's kind of confirmation like bias. How every time that we put on the movie frequency, my mom falls asleep and then she insists that it's her favorite movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's Rachel's favorite movie. No, 13 oh God, going on 30 really? is Rachel's favorite movie. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. But frequency is up there. Katie's favorite movie is Titanic. Really? That's I just watched Titanic movie. again the other day. How'd it hold up? Oh, I think we talked about it because I made some root joke about them hitting the propeller on the oh, way. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I compared it to the Batman and like in that the Batman didn't earn its three hours, but I thought Titanic earned its three hour length. Totally. Yeah. They used it well. Well, it's two movies, and, and people from the 90s will remember, it was actually two, two physical VHSs. VHSs. Yeah. Yeah, that's one true. was a yeah. romantic comedy, <laughs> or maybe just a romantic drama. The other one was a disaster film. Yeah. <laughs> and if yeah, you're yeah, a yeah. sick kid like me, it was just like, let's just watch the second half of Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> let's not get invested in these people at all. Let's just see them drown. <laughs> uh, I brought up Frequency Illusion, which uh, is actually probably not the best example. It's really more about comedy confirmation biases because boy we do sure see a lot of three o's don't we right yeah don't you agree it happens all, all the, the time. time but 100%. guess what it only happens 12 percent of the time 
Uh-huh. Mm. It should only happen 12% <laughs> of the time. But it feels like it always happens to me. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Way more than 12% of the time. Well, frequency illusion is a little bit different. Frequency illusion is when you first learn about something, then you seem to feel like it's popping up everywhere in your oh, life. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. That's like when I think... I was telling my mom about Occam's razor uh, like a year ago. And then like the next day she's like, I just heard Occam's razor on TV and you had just taught me about it the day before. And I feel like now I'm hearing it everywhere. And she would hear it over the week. She's like, now I heard it again. And that's a, that's a, that's a cognitive bias we all have in our heads are because our, our brains are uh, built to look for patterns. So it Mm -hmm. highlights patterns as soon as you see it. So that's just something you live with. So if you see threes a lot, don't think that it's, the statistics are wrong because probability is not incorrect. It's your own bias. In this case, I guess confirmation right. bias, maybe. I still feel like there's something supernatural just like punishing me, though. <laughs> yeah. I, I, well, Jake seems to think that it happens 12% of the time. And I don't think that's the case. I think it, sh- it, it should happen 12% of the time. I think if we were to take all roles that were ever made in games of Root. Throughout history, it happened about 12% of the time. I think it happened like 15% of the time. (laughs) Okay. But that's just your confirmation bias. And zero zeros happen like 30% of the time. Yours is just based off of numbers, all right? We both didn't see all the rolls. It could be 15%, but that's an anomaly, right? That'd be be disobeying the, the laws of... Probability. probability and mm-hmm. i disobey all kinds of laws well that's the thing it's like some of these things can happen there are right. extreme circumstances that could occur you could get you could get three o's three in a row in fact we were talking about that kyle right i calculated it out so here's the thing rolling three three o's in a row is an astronomical thing to do it only happens zero point one nine five three one two five percent of the time so a fifth of a percentage yeah yeah there's a one fifth of one percent chance uh of rolling three three o's in a row that's pretty low but that happens that's one in every 500 times right i so 500 rolls that could happen it could even happen twice it's unlikely but i think one of the best like community examples of this is the mob die from the Lord of the Hundreds. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, yeah. You got this die. It's a D6. <laughs> it's got two of each suit, right? It's got two foxes, two rabbits, two mouse, right? And you right, roll so it. Each suit has a roughly one third. Right. Uh, what do you mean roughly? Up. Exactly one third. <laughs> Sorry. Probability of appearing. <laughs> Everybody march in lines. He Jeez. went down eight decimal points on that other thing, and then he said roughly, which is exactly. <laughs> Just covering covering my ass for my counting podcast. Well, okay. All if right, you want so, more decimal points, you can come over to. I can't wait till we get to the supernatural effects episode. <laughs> so anyway, the community thinks that this mob die always rolls fox. Yeah, <laughs> and it it I feel like it does. It does roll fox quite often. I think the Mario Kart sound on TTS really helps it mm-hmm. take the sting out of it all always rolling fox but Jake how do you you know how do you grapple with the fact that it always rolls fox and yet you say it should roll fox only one third of the time Well see see that's the other thing about TTS that throws me off is like I don't know the code that's underlying on this whole right because it's one thing, thing to be a math problem and then it's another to like roll a physical dice in the physical world or a digital die in the digital world right right which one's better 
Which one is more oh, rolling random? Rolling a dice in a physical roll, but I would say digital world. 100%. Digital is more. Digital is more random, but a physical roll is, feels better. Yeah, oh, but a physical yeah. roll it can fall off the table. A physical roll is actually technically, I guess, not random too, right? It it's judged based on your throw, and if your throw is so precise, you can make it happen. Then it's not random. I think there is a game. I forget what it's called. Strike. It's called Strike, where the goal of the game is you're like tossing dice and you're trying to get it to land on certain things. Interesting. So yeah, playing with the literal physicality of uh, like regular sided of throwing polygon. a die, right? Yeah. Wow. Uh, but let's talk about the dice in Root, which are made of two 12-sided die uh, with an equal number of outcomes on each side. There are four possible outcomes, zero through three, and there are three of each of those numbers on a side. So that means there is, technically speaking, 16 possible permutations of outcomes, right? So yeah. when I say 16, I mean that a one and a zero and a zero and a one are two different outcomes even though they have a same result yeah mm-hmm. distinct outcomes before we start to do the attacker takes the higher role sort of conversion right but we should factor in what role you are in this in this role sorry we should factor in what r-o-l-e you are in this r-o-l-l because it will change your statistics so for instance if you're the attacker your chances of getting a zero assigned to you is 6.25 percent extremely low one out of 16 one out of 16 exactly because if it's a zero zero that's when you'll get it but if it's a one zero you'll get the one yeah so conversely, that means the defender has a 6.25% chance of getting a three because it's only yeah. in the outcome where a three, three would happen, right? Exactly. Yeah. Those, those, uh, tied results, right? Uh, oh, zero, zero, one, one, two, two, three, three. Those are the rarest results when rolling dice. Every other time that it's not tied, that means that the attacker is dealing more hits than the, the defender. Right. There's a dice calculator website that Nev plugged these numbers into, and it made a nice little um, bar graph that I will put into the link to, uh, of this description for the podcast for you guys to look at, because I think the visualization for it is very helpful. But you have to understand the values. So let's look at it real quick. The top four numbers there uh, are 0, 1, 2, and 3, and they apply to the attacker's role. So uh, they get a 6.25% chance of getting a zero assigned to them an 18.75 percent chance of getting a one a 31.25 percent chance of getting a two and a 43.75 percent chance to get a three those numbers are inverse for the defender it's 43 percent for a zero 31 percent for a one 18 for a two and six for a three yeah so that you are almost all of the time gonna get a hit <laughs> as an attacker yeah right mm-hmm. Except when there's two pieces of undefended cardboard, right? <laughs> yeah, Except when then there's you're going to get a zero, zero. And you need just any number other than zero, zero to hit them both. Yeah, that's the law of whiffing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> that has a 14% yeah. chance of happening 75% of the time when you're excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, inversely proportionate to how much you need it to happen. <laughs> but I, I like what you're saying there, uh, Kyle, which is that you have like a 93% chance of generating a hit on an attack. That's yeah. really great, helpful information. That's, that's excellent nice. odds. Yeah. You're most likely going to get at least a one. Mm-hmm. Most most likely. Like, it's pretty rare to, to roll a zero, zero. Um, and the, it's weird. It's unintuitive, I would say, or counterintuitive to, to think that a three would be showing up the most of any number as the attacker like that just seems weird right 
Well, right, yeah. shouldn't all of the results be kind of roughly equal? Well, they should be. But the thing is, is this whole factor of you get the higher die assigned to you throws this whole chart into a different territory. Yeah. Because a three can appear seven times, seven out of 16 permutations, then you got a 43% chance. That's fantastic. Almost half. Yeah. Yeah. So basically a coin flip or just slightly less than a coin flip to roll a three as an attacker. And I think that's something worth bearing in mind. Again, we're giving you all these like raw numbers, but I think what they mean is probably the more pertinent thing to focus on here. Basically, we know this about Root, but that incentivizes you to attack. And swinging for the fences can work and often does. (laughs) (laughs) Um, the, The nice thing about that, what that means for a game of Root is it should be, in theory, possible to disrupt opponent's plans via combat. Right. And if you need to check another player using battles, you are going to be rewarded with higher rolls almost all of the time. Um, we, we were fans of saying that a 2-1 is kind of like the average roll, but you're more likely than not to get a 3. Well, or you're not you're more likely, likely than not. No, no, you're not I guess more it's likely not than a, not. It's less than 50%, but I'd say you're more likely to get a 3 than any other number. Right. Ah, as the yes, okay. Dang. Those two, like, I'm just not a... Probability really hurts my brain. Like, I understand mm-hmm. the math and, like, the equations, but, like... When you start extrapolating on what it means in real life, I I, I start to have like <laughs> issues. I don't know what what yeah. it is like visceral issues of like I don't know about that. Yeah, um, because like those two sentences of you're more likely to get a three than any other number, and there's you're more likely not to get a three. <laughs> like, well, it is a little confusing actually, and I'm not sure we worded it right, so I want to make sure we get this accurate. It is not more likely to get a three than any other number. You're more likely to get any other number than a three. Right. Wait, but wait, wait. No, three no, no. is the most common number you're likely to get on an individual basis. So yeah, because you there's a fifty. What is it? Six percent chance you're gonna not get a three. That's higher than a three, Correct. which is forty three. Correct. So then you're more likely to get a three than any other number. You're most likely to get. <laughs> Saying it fast doesn't change its meaning. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> but you aren't yeah. more likely to get a three than any other number. <laughs> than all other numbers, I all guess. All other yeah, numbers, that, that's what that's, it is. That's maybe yeah. a clarification. Individually, a three is more likely to appear than any other individual number. Does that help? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> but, but, but I think this is going to Sam's point where this can be a little baffling because God, I hate it. <laughs> I mean, from a linguistic standpoint, but also just from uh, conceptualizing the odds kind of thing. Right. Right. We don't want to be like messy about this. Mm. I, I am trying to be as as clear oh, I know about communicating Absolutely. this as possible. I mean, yeah, again, it's it's about what it means. And it means that attacking tends to favor the attacker. In the discussion on the Discord, which was very lively before this episode about all the odds and stuff, Jerem Curry, a, a player that I uh, really aspire to be more like, uh, said, uh, somebody told me that 2-1 was the most common role, and I never looked back. <laughs> <laughs> and I yeah. think that there are, like, we're going to get into some numbers and some things, but, like, what it practically means, again, is just, like, things benefit the attacker, Go out and attack. The 2-1 yeah. rule of thumb is a great rule. So if we were to look at the averages 
that are occurring in both of these sets, the attacker and the defender. The attackers is about a two. It's like 2.13 or something. And then the defender is just under one. It's 0.88. Yeah. yeah. A little over two, a little under one. Yeah. Yeah. So we rounded, we rounded to two one. But you can generally speaking expect to, to generate two hits and take one on average. Yeah. So after this, this rounding situation, I mean, you can think of it in the following terms that as the attacker, you have a about a 75% chance of dealing at least two hits. In fact, a 77.5% chance of dealing at least two hits. That means a two or three. A lot of the time you're going to be hitting hard is what it means. It also goes to show you how crazy good of an ability the Woodland Alliance has with Guerrilla Warfare. You are always that top set of numbers. Guerrilla Warfare is so good. Any zeros mean that the attacker does nothing. 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 And like we said, the defender deals on average 0.88 hits. That means you're rolling a zero a lot of times as the attacker against the Alliance. It is crazy good. (laughs) Every time. 100% of the time. Just to show you, uh, like a counterexample, we had we did what the probability of rolling three three O's in a row uh, in a row is. Uh, what about three zero zeros in a row? Sam, have you ever seen three zero zeros in a row? No, I, not three in a row. I've probably seen two in the same game, but probably not even two in a row. Yeah, yeah. So whereas it was like a one in five hundred chance for three three O's, it's like a one in five thousand chance for three zero zeros. It's extremely unlikely. Uh, for those of you who love decimals, it's 0.024414 I love decimals. <laughs> I know. Delicious decimals. Mm, delicious. <laughs> so, okay. Let's say that you're in a game and you're trying to decide whether to attack and you attack and you roll like a 1-1. One, one. What do you think? Should you attack again if you have the ability? What are you trying to do? Yeah, what are you trying to do? That, that's the thing. Is like, what is success to you? Well, um... dealing the most <laughs> hits possible in a board game. What about you? <laughs> yeah, hitting as hard as pan. Yeah, hitting as hard as I can. Well, that's the thing. Is like, do we roll again? Is 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 not necessarily always contingent upon the success or failure of our first roll. It's really about like, what are we planning to do with that second roll? Are we were we planning to move on and go get cardboard in the next clearing over with our next move too? Or do we need to do disrupt something here right now and make sure that we get a number of hits? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a good point. I'm not Again, trying we're, to we're in our like specifically vague uh, mood here over at Woodland War Machine. And I'm not trying to avoid the question so much as like trying to put this in a context of like, what is your context? Because it's important. We can't just rely purely on numbers. We have to rely on what our objectives are. I think I got right. a hypothetical here. OK. OK. You got one cat guarding a sawmill and a wood. Okay. Got it. Okay. You got a clearing over where you've got an undefended face up plot. Okay. So then I guess after the first battle, you're left with the cat and the two cardboard. Right. Should you advance in the same clearing to take out that cardboard thinking that you can get two or three hits or do you take that advance to move and take the guaranteed point? Interesting. Okay, so let's think about it this way. You need three hits to get two points of cardboard, right? Right. From the cats. Whereas you need to roll... It's 100% guaranteed to get the undefended cardboard. Right. Okay, so what are the odds of rolling a three that you would need to get the two points of cardboard to make that worth it? Right? Right. Two points is obviously better than one. 
So yeah, it's like 43%, right? So it's a little less than a coin flip. I guess in that instance, you still get one point. Though. But you would still get one point based on a 2-0 roll and be parked on some undefended cards. 75% chance or 77% chance of that happening. You have a 77% chance of at least getting one point from a battle against the cats. Right. And the cats on average will deal 0.88 hits back to you. Right. So it's a pretty safe attack, I would say. If there's two cats there. Well, then it's 43% chance that you're getting one point versus a hundred percent chance of getting one point and no hit step back. So again, check the discard pile for ambushes, but probably go for the plot. But if the cats need that wood to win the game, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Everything is attached to the people playing. Unfortunately, as much as we want to number five things, I feel like I'm the Jake of this episode where I'm like, guys, it's the people at the table. <laughs> Well, I mean, but. it is it is still the people at the table. And as you mentioned at the beginning, they are a random factor, too. Uh, yeah. But you solve them with talk, which is also pretty <laughs> random. But you guys solve them, you you evil genius. Sam, you solve people. <laughs> and then you yeah. move on. <laughs> but the one thing you asked, though, Kyle, was like, all right, you owe you zero one first. Right. Isn't that what you said is your first example? Yeah. What does that matter? In your thinking, it didn't seem to come up when you guys were gaming that out. Oh, well, it's just like you already attacked. So, like, do you, you so? should just keep going, right? No, like, why? You, what do you, you mean? Would... What, what does that matter? Well, like, you, <laughs> you, you embarked on the venture of battling uh-huh. and it didn't go well. So, like, you should just keep, <laughs> keep plowing, you know? <laughs> well, it's like the odds are... I think what we're getting at, right, is that like you were unlucky the first time, so you're more likely to get what you need the second time. Yeah, you're due. That is what I'm you're walking due. you into. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're due. But this is another fallacy that we'll be discussing now. I think, well, we're actually talking about two fallacies now, one of which is the sunk cost fallacy, which is like, oh, the outcome for the first time didn't work out how I wanted. Should that change my opinion of what I do the second time? And you're saying yes, because you've already embarked on the journey. You need to complete it. Uh, I guess. Yeah. So, (laughs) yeah, I walked into that. (laughs) So it's like if you've already done it halfway, like, why not go, you know, whole hog and keep going? But like, I I guess that's a a good point. Tell me more about this, Jake. Well, you you guys actually solved it yourselves, because in your example, Kyle, where the example that Sam provided about the cats and and the warlord, neither of you were considering the factor of the previous fight going poorly because it doesn't matter. Right. Just because you already tried and failed shouldn't affect your decision making on the next time where it does affect your decision making is like you have a finite amount of attacks to get through. Right. So you Mm. need to estimate about how many it'll take to get there. And if you lose on some of those averages, then that might change your uh, forecasting. But like Mm. we said, you can add these things together. Right. Because like how unlikely is it to roll? three three o's in a row right so it's like how unlikely is it that you get one hit in the first battle like if you combine those things together Uh wouldn't you be more likely to get hits on the two or more hits on the second roll no here's why this is called the gambler's fallacy right this is where we think that the outcome of a previous roll should affect the outcome of another one right if i just rolled a zero zero then we got the zero zero out of the way now i can roll yeah a now it's less likely to happen because what are the odds of it happening twice well those odds exist and you might be in that universe this actually started with <laughs> what was known as the monte carlo fallacy which i learned about while uh linking <laughs> the wikipedia entry for gambler's fallacy but i didn't know about the monte carlo fallacy so back in like 1913 uh there was a moment 
moment in the Monte Carlo Casino where uh, a roulette table, which for those of you that don't know roulette, it is a wheel that has slots in it that are evenly divided between black and red. And a ball is rolled in there and wherever it lands, people will place bets on both a number and a uh, color combination. Well, the ball fell into a black slot 26 times in a row that's extremely unlikely uh like probability i think it's something like one in 66 million is what some of these articles Whoa. say so yeah for 66 million times this could only happen once well, i mean again statistically assuming the mechanism itself doesn't like isn't you know tilted if it's like a perfectly even thing but a bunch of gamblers at that time bet against black thinking that oh well red is due right and they lost a ton of money because I bet. It, it red's still 50 50 shot after that it doesn't make any difference wow what makes a difference yeah. and where the fallacy comes from is like we think because the percentage chance of it happening is lower which you're right sam what are the odds of it happening three times in a row well Kyle calculated it for you. It's one in 500. So you getting a 3-0 three times in a row, that'll happen if you play, if you roll 500 times in route, it'll probably happen. Yeah, I mean, that's actually a great way to think about it. I think this is the intuitive trap that I mm -hmm. fall into most frequently. A hundred percent. I'm it's just still like, there. It is so hard to shake. It is a confusing it's, concept. It's a common bias. I yeah. can't, I, well, I can't understand both like, Hey, the odds are what the odds are every single time. Wipe the slate clean. It's always going to be this. And you telling me the odds of it happening three times in a row. Okay, so let's separate it out then. Let's look just at the odds. When we're looking at our table of like what's going to come up, when a zero is going to come up for the attacker, it's 6.25%, right? It happens one out of 16 times. Yeah. Uh, where in this graph does it matter which role this is? Right, it's not in there. It doesn't because it doesn't matter because it doesn't change the factor. So you know that fact right uh, from the get go. You know right. that this is a locked fixed amount. Right. Great. Now, when that outcome happens, that's a new contingency upon the next roll. So that's right. where that percentage chance happens. It just doesn't affect it. It's just we're saying this is the odds of this timeline occurring. But so go back to Monte Carlo. Isn't it smart to bet red? Why would it be smart to bet red? It has a 50-50 shot. Because it's so unlikely that black gets rolled a 27th time in a row. No, it's not. I guess it's I, 50 I'm 50 a little chance. stuck there, too. That's, wow. that's the fallacy. Guys, that logical fallacies, that's why we're, this is, this is what breaks humans' brains. We commit these all the time. Don't feel, don't feel bad about that. I commit <laughs> sunken cost fallacy all the time, and we do that a lot in yeah. Root, and that should actually be its own wow. podcast of like, oh, well, I already invested so much in this, I should keep going. No. If you have invested a lot of money in a scam, like if you got involved in like a protein shake scam where you're trying to upsell them and you do it for five years and you realize it's not working out, should you do it another year because you've really committed so much to this already? I mean, if the dragon god tells you to. <laughs> <laughs> I think, but... But what if the shakes are really good? I don't know if I can get on... I just can't understand it. I, I understand all the points we've made. I yeah. understand every sentence <laughs> and it's like the numbers. I just, mm -hmm. when you put them together, I, I just see two worlds where these two math problems exist. hundred uh percent. -huh. Yeah. I shouldn't use percents when I agree with you, Sam, but yes, I, I <laughs> completely agree with you. Um, uh, here's, here's something to think about maybe is that each instance of RNG is like a discrete, right. 
event. Yes. And because we're human beings, we like to chain together events into stories. And and that kind of goes with odds as well. But in, in fact, if we're trying to be like as completely like dispassionate as possible about, you know, an, an RNG event, like it is maybe good to look at it a little bit in isolation. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like disconnect it from like the, just the sense of, oh, the odds are long, this result happening however many times like in a row or whatever, but just be like, okay, this is a new role that's about to happen. Yes. And I know the odds for one role. That's that's a perfect way to look at it, Kyle, because they're two different things now. Right. So there's the six point two percent chance of getting that zero as the attacker. Then on your second roll, there's two new probabilities. There's a probability of getting it, which is the same. It's six point two. And there's a probability of it happening, quote unquote, again, which doesn't matter. It is a truth. It is true that it, like if you look at it from the outside and say, boy, that day was kind of crazy that I had that statistically unlikely thing happen. Yeah. But from just an individual, each role is statistically independent, then it's always 6.2. Wow. This is such a, like, zen cone <laughs> thing for me right now. That I'm like, I'm, like, holding these two contradictory ideas in my head at the same time. Yeah, Sam's, like, holding his grip onto reality very tenuously right now. <laughs> I can't. He's resisting. So you <laughs> think... <laughs> So you would bet your money if you were in Monte Carlo, if you were at that casino, you'd be like, you know what? We're going to go red. Of f***ing course. Sorry, I don't mean to make work for you to bleep it. But yes, of course. You just told me that it's one in 66 million that it happens that many times in a row. But remember, we've split these things now again. That is one truth. But also, the the equal truth is that there's a 50% chance it's going to be red, and a 50% chance it's going to be black. Actually, with roulette, I think there's one that's neither, but I don't remember. It doesn't matter. Right. Who cares? Yeah, who, who cares? cares? I, I just... There's I, one that's just a bird. It's wild. <laughs> it's <a> bird. Yeah. <laughs> and birds are wild, so everybody's furious and doesn't know what that means. Everybody wins. <laughs> I just... I Well, it's just like, how can you tell me? That the odds are one in 66 million of it happening that many times. Wouldn't you just say the odds are 50%? Well, but, but like, I mean, right. landing that many times is like, oh, it's really rare, but it was just a series of 50%, which is true. But you're acting like me betting red is as foolish as flipping a coin when I feel like eventually, statistically, it's got to come around to red again, right? They're statistically independent. They do not like if you were to forget the information after every roll, like mm-hmm. if you were if that was to be wiped from your brain, would you you'd still bet the same, wouldn't you? I don't, I don't know. I don't know what I don't w- know what, what the would same change? is because I've forgotten. <laughs> All right, we got to move on. We no. can't just <laughs> no, we can move on. But I'm so curious as to like you don't think it's true. This is this is brought up a kind of new understanding for me though. Now I'm kind of looking at it. So this this whole idea of like contextualizing the odds and you know having these big numbers and stuff like that, I feel like that's a luxury of hindsight. Whereas when you're in the moment making a decision strategically sure. in an RNG situation, I feel like you have to kind of like be able to let that go a little bit and instead ground yourself in the table, like ground yourself in the like kind of stricter in a vacuum style um, percentages. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. What about regression towards the mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like this is a, 
That is true because like, guess what? The example I gave happened in 1913 and hasn't been recorded any other time. That's because we've regressed to the mean because all of the recorded instances of roulette have been hitting those averages once again. But that's, that happened. Right. Which is, but I just, it, 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 for me, it breaks when you felt like it wasn't a good idea to bet on red. <laughs> it was equally good to bet on red as it was on black. I'm saying you thought it was better to red on, bet it on red. It is. I'm not saying by like 66 million percent, but it is better to bet on red. I submit, as does I think most of reality, that it's not. I will. All right. Wimmy's weigh in. No, right Sam, now, don't do this to yourself. On, no. on the channel. <laughs> this is not. <laughs> would you bet on red or would you bet on black? Yeah. Red was due, though. I agree. <laughs> I feel like you guys. Look, aren't, it can be true. I'm that- taking this very seriously that I do think that red <laughs> is <laughs> at that point after 26 blacks. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Red is due. You're right, Sam, but it doesn't make it more likely to occur. You're right. Red is due. It's statistically unlikely for black to happen again, but it doesn't change the individual statistical likelihood. A hundred percent. But I, I just saw 26 blacks. If Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm going to flip a so coin. If it's, yeah. If it's a coin, wouldn't you rather be on the side of the coin that's regression towards the mean rather than the side of the coin that's like this? I, I can't believe it happened again. Sam, I'm about to flip a coin. Is heads or tails smarter based on the last three uh, flips I did? I don't know. Get heads 27 times in a row and then we'll talk. <laughs> It'll still be equally. <laughs> There'll still be an equal chance of it occurring because they're statistically independent. You're just putting you're just putting interdependence into the ind- into the independent thing, right? You, we're again, as we talked about with uh, sunk cost fallacy too, and like pattern recognition or frequency illusion, we have a bias to look for patterns. Our brains want to connect those ideas. It's how we stayed safe in evolution. You know, when something mm-hmm. when we ate something that made made us feel good, we looked for other things that looked like that, like ripe fruits and stuff. When mm-hmm. we ate things that poisoned us, we died. And so we didn't repeat that. Or we ate <laughs> things that got us sick. We tried to avoid those things. We looked for those patterns in nature. The same thing is happening here. You're just applying the formula to two different realities a little bit. And I don't mean like the multiverse realities. I mean that there is a statistical likelihood that it will be rolled and there's a statistical likelihood that 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 same outcome would happen again those are separate calculations they are not Mm. the same calculation okay yeah i feel like i'm having another epiphany based on that um line of reasoning as well where there's like there's inputs and then there's outcomes yeah oh and like like, the probability on uh, our surrounding outcomes is like a story we're telling about or like a way to contextualize the uh, a sequence of outcomes, mm-hmm. whereas like the inputs are always the same. Yes. Yeah. Right. The story is a great thing because we talk about the stories like the Monte Carlo story or the three O's in a row. Those are stories we remember because of our own confirmation bias, because we want to remember those because that's a pattern. That's a story. We hook onto those as human beings. God, it's so hard to let go. But we can't deny the reality that. It still happens a certain percentage of the time. Am I too old to like change my brain now? Because I feel like I'm not going to be able to get rid of that. That's your sunk cost fallacy right there. You're saying I spent too long thinking incorrectly, so I won't change my mind. I'm still betting red. I'm betting red. I don't care. It's an even bet. 50-50. That's a fair bet. Mm, I think I got the edge. I'm going to edit out your mm. (laughs) mmm. I'm going to piece together. I agree. 
Different I don't think I ever said that. Yeah. I'll Sam, find it. can you just go ugh? <laughs> and then can you go read? Right. Yeah, Wimmies, if you have fallen for the gambler's fallacy, go ahead and write in. And if you know better, also write in and we'll figure it out. Yeah, I want everyone to change their Discord name to either <laughs> Team Red or Team Black. <laughs> oh my God. They're so fit. Or just put like a little red or black emoji in your name. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so let's go to some easy math here. Ruin items. There's four of them, so 50, uh, 25% chance. <laughs> Moving on. Quest deck. Actually, we can't move on yet, because I forgot. There's actually a situation with two Vagabonds. Oh. That's a little bit funny. Uh, well, well let's, let's talk about what this means, though. So when you're talking about the ruin items, there's, there's only four, and your chance of getting what you want is one in four, and then obviously yeah. sinks down. So if there's two Vagabonds... Then there's two items under each, so there's a total of eight uh, items. But there's a total of 16 possible pair combinations, right. distinct combinations. Oh. Kind of the same as like the dice, actually. Right. Interesting. Okay. So your odds are, what, a little under half that they're... A little bit under half, yeah. Seven out of 16 uh, odds that it's any one particular item that you would want to focus on. So if you're looking for that hammer... And it's your first time picking out of a ruin. You got about a 7 out of 16 chance. To- Which is way better than in a normal game. Yes, for sure. Which is only it is 25%. Much better. Yeah. So actually, two Vagabonds in the game significantly improves your chances of finding that special item that you just need. Assuming you're the Vagabond that goes first. Yeah, that gets it. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> the other thing. Someone else is stealing them. Or the Warlord right. doesn't. Well, I guess they wouldn't be able to do it on turn one. So yeah. there is a statistic that you put in here, Kyle, that I really like that we might have skipped over, which is the chance of getting a higher role as an attacker. Oh, yeah. Oh, this is this is fun. This is pretty direct. Right. So there's four um, outcomes on dice rolls that are not higher roles for the attacker. Right. Those four outcomes are all even since the attacker always takes the higher number. The only time that they wouldn't get a higher number is if it's even. So there's only four um, even outcomes or 25%. So that means that you three out of four are going to get a higher role as an attacker. 75% of the time you're getting um, a higher amount of damage output than your opponent. Interesting. 25% of the time you'll tie, whether that's 0, 0, 1, 1, 2, 2, or 3, 3. Exactly. So the worst you can do is even. And as we mentioned, you can get at least three hits as an attacker 43% of the time and exactly 3-0, which is like, ooh, pristine. You can get that two out of 16 times or one in eight or 12.5%. 12.5%, yeah. Love it. Um, other important things, I guess so we should talk about the quest deck. Yeah, and actually for more kind of complete information and some delicious graphs, head on over to Make Craft Game. Uh, Lily has just posted a great deep dive into the quest deck that I'm going to uh, pilfer a little bit of um, I- idea framing from here. Yeah, I, I Lily's been doing that on stream. I've noticed Lily's like had the quest deck with her, like ready to go looking at the quest because it's a it's a confusing thing to calculate. It is. It is confusing, or at least it's just a little bit like fuzzy feeling. Mm-hmm. Um so the thing to know is that for questing, you need two items. Sometimes the items are the same. Frequently, they aren't. It's a pair, two different items. 
The most common item that you need for questing is actually the torch. Mm-hmm. It's required in seven out of 15 quests, Ugh. which is just slightly under half. So about half of the quests that can pop up from the quest deck will require your torch. Now, the torch is used to explore. So theoretically, after you're done exploring the ruins, that torch is just kind of available to do quests. Unless your torch has a different ability uh, as the Vagabond, like Glide for the Harrier, for example, or Steal if you're the Thief. In which case, you got to make a choice. Do I use that torch to quest? Do I use that torch for its other special ability? Woe is me, I'm the Vagabond. Or in the case Uh, of the Scoundrel, you have to decide, am I going to use this torch ever again for anything (laughs) else other than to blow up a clearing? Exactly. Do I place it on the board and lose it forever? Um, so, okay, 7 out of 15 quests require the torch, and I just wanted to highlight something that I thought was really interesting over on Lily's page, where she identified the kind of spread of items that are required for each suit of questing, and there's some patterns that pop up, which is kind of interesting. So in the mouse quests, you actually will never need a tea or coins to complete a mouse quest. They only require bag, sword, boots, and crossbow. For rabbit, the excluded items are coins and bags, which makes me think that it's actually the mouse quests that are the easiest to complete because they don't require tea or coins, which are are items you, I mean, coins you don't get that frequently unless you start with them. And tea you almost never want to spend for a quest, right? right? You want to keep that around. So mouse tends to be very friendly. Uh, And last of the foxes don't require a sword or a crossbow, which is fascinating, right? Because the fox is like the martial suit. And you need fox crafting power to craft sword and crossbow. So it's just a bit odd that that's the excluded items there. We covered this in episode three. It's because the foxes can handle their own. There is no fend off a bear <laughs> quest in fox. They are self-sufficient. Uh, the mouse, the mice and the rabbits, however, do need your help fending off the bear. Therefore, yeah, you will need sense. to use that sword or crossbow. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, foxes really need help with speeches, though, for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. Terrible public speakers well notably torch is required for almost half the quests yeah oh we didn't put a percentage on this this is uh (laughs) 46.6666 any final takeaways about encountering rng in the world of root i mean aside from just like staying grounded in the kind of individual tables and stuff like that like what how after this episode are we thinking about rng in a different way like what's your kind of takeaway philosophy here uh, for me, yeah, I think I definitely am. I love framing these percentages in terms of like what you're capable of as an individual. It's like I always looked at the dice as kind of outcomes, whereas now I'm looking at the dice of like, what's my outcome a little bit? I worry less mm-hmm. about the opponent. Um, I mean, you always have to factor that in, but I'm kind of assuming the worst. The fact that I can roll a three 43% of the time, I didn't know that. That's great. <laughs> That's great news. I love yeah. that. That's I'm going to definitely think of that. And I think I'm also going to take away that I'm treating I'm treating any instance of RNG as an event. And what I mean an event is like after it occurs, then that changes the other RNG for me in terms of what I'm like looking at. Now, this might go counterintuitively to what I was trying to talk Sam out of with like excess uh, story and stuff like that with statistical independence. But what I'm saying is, is like my odds have changed because maybe what's in my hand is going to change the outcome of that or maybe when i rolled the dice and things were placed away that changed the uh the what statistical likelihood of what could happen like if i battled away their warriors they can't deal hits to me so 
each event that occurs kind of changes the way I calculate my approach to random number generation. Yeah, I just got to hit that refresh button on my um, brain browser in between events. Uh, I, I feel like my biggest takeaways are the uh, the kind of like what's left after the draft and the likelihood of being ambushed on those early turns. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We mm-hmm. all know how much that can affect a game. But yeah. uh, also the reshuffle thing has really blew my mind of like, oh, the items are so much more likely on that reshuffle. So then it's like, should you craft early so that there isn't as juicy of a reshuffle because if those items are sold out it doesn't matter if you get those item cards you know dead cards yeah yeah Yeah, that's an interesting concept for sure i I actually didn't even piece that together as well but yeah that's that's a really interesting idea try and negate any kind of card advantage that would result by just making uh dead item cards wow that's that's a really interesting way to kind of like impact the card economy of another player i like that um that Maybe a little bit like win more slightly or like, you know, if that's what you're at, if that's where you're at to harm your opponents, like you must already be winning. Right. Right. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, I think the thing that I'm taking away is actually thinking about when I need to roll the dice a little bit differently. I think I want to start by saying how many hits do I need here and then working backwards to like, OK, so what's the likelihood of that? And if it's, I need to avoid a certain amount of hits here, I can work backwards from that as well. Um, but just staying really grinding the tables and, and being real clear about what success looks like. I'm going to piggyback that uh, idea there, Kyle, uh, with a quote from our Discord from Squidmark, who says, Good players will often find ways to mitigate the impact that RNG has on their game as much as possible in the early game, using table talk and board position to set up in the mid-game, and then go for non-RNG to win in the end game if possible. Or an RNG one with the basic understanding of Roots RNG in their mind. I mean, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think just limiting your RNG is a good idea, but obviously you can't do it when you want to draw a card. Like, it's not saying draw less cards, right? You always want to draw more cards. You're just increasing the RNG aspects for your chances. Right. You don't want to have to battle for those final points, Mm -hmm. right? You don't want to have to roll dice. As someone who had to in their tournament game, at the end, I went, okay, well, if they have the ambushes, I'm screwed. That's what I was worried about was the RNG of the cards because I knew the average roll is 2-1. I can get past one warrior. What is the odds here? Like 77% of the time I'm going to deal at least two hits, Kyle? Something like that? Yeah, 77% and of the time. And then I did not get that. <laughs> and there was no ambush, right? No ambushes. Nope. Yeah. That was the thing that I was worried about, and I had to worry about the dice. And I like Squidmark's advice, which is that you want to avoid those in the end game because... You can kind of do it in the early game because, you know, you can have a chance to recover necessarily, but you're going to want to try and mitigate those options as often as possible. Great. Well, good brain bending conversation. <laughs> I'm excited yeah. to see uh, excited to see how this one shakes out statistically. Yeah, I'm excited to see how many Wimmies are Team Red and how many are Team Black. I have a pretty <laughs> dire prediction for you, Sam. Okay. Okay. I'm just going to say, I think <laughs> I people think it's understand it's 50 50. <laughs> What'd you say, Kyle? <laughs> I said, I think it's going to be 50-50. <laughs> that would be the worst. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you what. If we're in Monte Carlo and we are trying to bet the house, hmm. I know what I'm going to be chanting while we throw that ball on the roulette table. 
Rude.